Dear Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you desire to draw us to yourself. What a beautiful song. What a beautiful picture of you being everything we want, everything we desire, but most of all, everything we need. Thank you so much, Lord, for for providing us with vocal cords so that we can sing your praises. What a blessing that is. Lord, you have created us wonderfully, and it's just astounding to be among your body and to hear the voices cry out to you. Lord, would you please open our hearts now? Would you please continue to work in them? And Lord, would you speak clearly to all of us today so that we would know that we have been with you. Thank you, Lord. And it's in Jesus' wonderful and holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you, worship team. What a, what a blessing it is to, to begin our service with the chance to connect with God in music. Music is, is such an emotional medium. It, it's just such an amazing thing. And to know that God created us to sing, us to sing back to him, the, the glories and the praises that, that he has given to us. And, and that's just, it's just so neat. So thank you guys. Thanks, worship team, for your time and effort. These guys show up early on Sundays, stay late on Mondays, and, and they, they work hard to provide us with that opportunity. It was great to see everybody today. I wonder to this morning when the wind is blowing, and at least in Fort Collins, the snow is blowing as well, and you, you really recognize the power that is out there, that, that uh, you know, the wind wants to blow you off the road, the, the snow is pelting, and that there's just this absolute comfort of knowing that, that when you're his, it's going to be fine. It's going to be okay. I remember growing up in Montana. I grew up in northern Montana, just a stone's throw from the Canadian border on the Great Plains. And we would get storms that would roll across that would be d- just terribly frightening. It would be just astounding. We were helping my uncle, who my mom's brother, his family lived just five miles east of us, and we were putting up a Quonset building we had all the foundation in, and we poured that uh, the week before, and we had about a third of the, the metal up, and we looked to the west, and here came a storm. And it was astounding, the power of this storm coming from the west. And the wind wasn't blowing from side to side like typical. It was blowing in circles from the ground lifting up. And for those of you who have been in those types of storms, when you're working with metal buildings, there is nothing exciting about that. Because you realize this wind's job is to take what you've just done and move it. And so we scramble, right? You you see that power and you scramble to grab whatever you can to throw over the top of this. And you tie it to tractors and trucks and, and everything else. Everything you can find to hold this in place because there's no ends to it. It's like a wind tunnel and it's going to catch it all. And so you recognize the power that God has harnessed. And by his grace, we were all fine. We didn't lose a single thing. Right? Few of the instructions blew away, but that was okay. We didn't read those anyway. But it was great. And, and so you, you look at the size of that and the amazing power that God brings in those storms. And it's the same thing they must see in hurricanes out on the water and, and tornadoes and, and recognizing that. And then you bring that down to a smaller perspective and you look at the work that gets done. 
in the years prior to me growing up on the farm, there was work done with horses, right? Before that, uh, oxen. And they would move things and would recognize that, that in many cases, the work that needed to be done was more than a single animal could do. It required more effort than a, what a single animal could provide. And so they would increase the number of animals in order to provide that strength and that, that power in order to accomplish things. And in order to do that, they had to hook them together, right? It wasn't, you couldn't just have five or six animals or, or two or whatever it was and just sort of out there on their own. You had to put them together somehow in order to get the work accomplished. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the yoke. I love God's using word pictures. I think it's a lot of that is because it's a lot of the way I am. I love word pictures. I like the opportunity to, to do that because I think in many cases it brings us closer to understanding when we can imagine and visualize things. And, and, and God, through Paul, in, in the, the last part of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, is using a wonderful word picture here of being yoked together. So the concept of the yoke was one of using something to bring two or more animals together to accomplish a job that a single animal couldn't do on their own. Right? So God's going to use this word picture to help us understand us and what we look like. Now, I always remember back to some of the great stories my grandpa told me. My grandpa farmed for years with horses. I mean, he was a horseman. There are people in the world who have horses, and there are people in the world that are, are horsemen and horsewomen. And there's a big difference between that. And just because you have a horse and just because you've actually been around horses your whole life doesn't make you a horse person. I know that because I get to work on horses on a regular basis. So my day job is as an equine surgeon at CSU. And I get to, ex- I get to have experiences with people who have horses. And I get to work with people who actually understand horses. And they're not always the same. And in fact, is in most cases, the people that don't understand the horses are the most challenging for us to work with. But my grandpa was a horseman. He understood horses. He could get a horse to do nearly anything. I was amazed as a child watching this man work around horses. He was completely at ease. There was never a point, there was never an issue where he looked concerned. There was never a time where he looked like he was over his head. He was just natural. Everything he did around, on top of, or behind a horse was natural to him. There was never a wasted motion. There was never a wasted thought. It was just astounding. I learned everything I ever knew about working with horses from this man. And it was just a blessing and a privilege to do that. And he would tell us stories. And my grandpa loved to tell stories. And I loved to hear stories. So we were a good pair, the two of us. And and for much of our lives, we were inseparable. I mean, it was almost as if we were attached somehow to each other. And, and, and this man made a big difference in my life. And probably, in all honesty, is the reason why I work on horses today. is because of him. And, and to do that. But he would tell stories... To, and to help us understand the importance of, of teamwork in your horses. And he had a pair of horses that were apparently unbeatable. Now, he wasn't big into the going around the country doing polling events or things like that. But in their local area, they would have local fairs and other things. And he was it was not uncommon for him to have a team entered into something and, and work on this. But he had a pair that couldn't be beat. In fact, is if I remember correctly, they never were. 
This pair of horses was never beat. But they had two different personalities, these two horses. There was, there was the horse that was always on the left side. And this horse, the job was to hit the harness hard. Right? When he went, he would always give that horse just, just a split second of an urging before the horse on the right. Because the horse on the left was aggressive. He wasn't as strong as the horse on the right. But he was more aggressive than the horse on the right. The horse on the left didn't think there was anything he couldn't move. And he got that way because my grandpa trained him to be that way. He started with really light loads. And he built this horse's confidence up with this idea so that the horse never knew he couldn't move something. So when the horse was put in harness and he was hooked to something, he had to conceive that he could move it because he had never not been able to. The horse on the right was actually a horse that was stronger than the one on the left. But he was not nearly as confident in what he could do. So if the horse on the left hit the harness a split second before the one on the right, it would start to move. And the one on the right would pick up on that it was already moving. And then he would lean into the harness and they would pull away. They would never beat. And it was a neat combination. But these horses had to work together. The horse on the right was older and he died. The horse on the left, my grandpa could never find another mate they could work with him as well and understand the concept of what they were doing. And he was, at the, after that point, had to work on his own. So he only pulled that horse by himself after that. So it was a wonderful combination that these two horses had. They just worked well together. When I was in veterinary school, I mean, I would go down to the, uh, the stock show and we watched the draft horse pulling. I was fascinated. I'd heard these stories for years and so we'd go every year. And I remember watching this one team and they were the antithesis of this team my grandpa had. And these horses couldn't work together and they, they got off. And what happened is they, they started to pull this load and the, and the one horse moved forward, but the other one stood still. And then this other one moved forward and the other one stood still and they never moved. They, they never, they never broke the surface tension of the sled, the stone sled to the ground because they wouldn't work together in what they did. So it's the differences of, of what we look at from animals and getting into the yoke or the harness as, as we work with that. So all of that to kind of be a prelude, if you will, to what Paul's going to talk about today. So if you remember last week, Paul was crying out to the Corinthians to share with them his love for them. He talked about his heart being enlarged. It was full. It was grown. It was just, it it held so much love for the Corinthians. And he was encouraging them because they hadn't responded back in turn with that. They hadn't responded back in kind. The Corinthians were not full of love. Their hearts, um, instead of being enlarged with love, were actually shrunken. They were narrow. They didn't have the ability to, to, to reach out. And so he was encouraging them to do that and trying to help them understand. And Paul started out this whole part in verse 11 to try to prepare the Corinthians because he had some tough stuff for them. He knew that what he was going to tell them next required them to understand he did this in love. Right? How many of us have been in that same situation where we know there's a hard thing that we have to bring up? And if we start the conversation from a positive perspective, how much easier it is to bring in the difficult things alongside that? And how much more receptive the people are that we're speaking to? Whereas if we know that we've got a hard thing and we just go pound them with it, how often they will just close. 
Right? It's just like a wall comes up around them and they're not going to listen to you. So Paul was doing that. Paul was, was appealing to them to share his love for them. And, and he was asking them back to do that and to open wide to them all in verse 13. And now he's going to start off in verse 14 with his challenge for them. There's a command. He's asking them, now Corinthians... Because I love you so much and I really desire for you to love me back. One of the ways you can show me that you love me back is to be responsive to God's commandments. And then he hit them with verse 14, the first half of it. And he says to them in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, do not be bound together with unbelievers. This bound that he talks about is, is probably literally translated best as unequally yoked. Now that's great if you understand what a yoke is all about, but if you don't, then being unequally yoked doesn't really make much sense, and so we've, we've translated it or changed it to bound. But in essence, it's talking about don't mingle together or be united with unbelievers. Now for most of my adult life in reading this verse, I assumed he was speaking about marriage. That's what we hear this for almost always. Don't be bound with unbelievers. Don't be unequally yoked. It's associated with marriage. But I actually, honestly, after reading through this again, I don't know where we get that from. It doesn't say that at all. It's not at all talking about just marriage. It's life. Everything. So this was going to be a hard thing, and I'm going to guess that it's not going to be easy for most of us because it leaves lots of questions that I'm hoping by the end we can answer. This is really based upon Deuteronomy 22, verses 9 through 11. And God gives a number of word pictures to the Israelites as he's speaking through Moses. And Moses says, you shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, lest all the produce of the seed which you have sown and the increase of the vineyard become defiled. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. You shall not wear a material mixed of wool and linen together. There's a number of things that he's talking about there. This refers mostly to the yoking. You shouldn't yoke an ox and a donkey together. Now, there's lots of reasons for not doing that. Number one, it's not very effective. They're totally different animals. They respond totally different. Their strength comes from different perspectives. The donkey's far more of a speed, if you will, not not necessarily considered a thoroughbred, mind you, but but compared to an oxen who's very slow and methodical, the donkey is more of a speed animal. Uh, Their personalities, if you can give an animal a personality, are different. Oxen are much more slow-growing, more focused on things. Donkeys are better than horses in that manner, but they're still a little bit more hot-blooded, if you will. But one of the interesting parts, if you really look at this, the point that I think Moses was trying to make with this and helping them understand the, the problem with being unequally yoked was looking at the cleanness of the animals. Right? We know that the oxen were considered clean to eat multiple compartments to their stomach, and cloven feet. That was a clean animal. Animals that were unclean to eat were animals that had single digits or or if they had a single compartment to their the gastric portion of their, their intestinal tract. The Israelites were not permitted to eat donkeys. And so we're, we're coming back to this word picture of the clean versus the unclean. And we're going to use that as we go through all of these different things and and work through them and and try to understand what that looks like. So we need to be careful whenever 
we look at things to make sure that we take it all the way to the end. Because if we stopped here now and I said to you, don't be bound, yoked, united, whatever word you want to put in there that's, that's going to be a synonym, don't be bound with unbelievers, then we might miss the whole benefit of this passage. And we might, we might not then understand all that God had for us to learn through this. We might simply go out and say, well, now I was fine when I thought I understood this as being marriage only. But now that I understand that God's talking about our entire lives, everything we do from dawn till dusk uh, through the night, everything that we do associated with that, we might walk away with the perspective that maybe we shouldn't have anything to do with non-believers. That's not God's intent at all. But we want to go through this and carefully evaluate and, and understand what this is going to look like. And, and so we're going to take Paul's words and dissect them out a little bit and move on into the second part of verse 14 and, and verse 15. Because Paul's now bringing out some perspectives for us. And he's trying to help us by bringing direct opposites, right? unlikely comparisons, if you will. So often we, we will compare something that's very positive with something else. We would say to our spouses, your eyes are like the stars, right? They twinkle. So it's a positive to a positive. They're, we bring those things together in uh, such as that. But, but what Paul's going to do through here is kind of help us to see direct opposites. He's going to try to bring some corollaries of, of a yoking of an unbeliever and a believer, at some, whatever that level is, marriage, work, life, all of these things. He's going to try to bring these out for us to help us understand. So he says in the second half of verse 14, For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? When we talk about partnerships, they, they, we have them all over our lives, right? Everywhere we go, we have partnerships. We, when we're married, we have a partnership with our spouse. We have partnerships on some level with our, with our children. Our children have partnerships with each other. We have partnerships with our neighbors. We share a property line. We, we have partnership with people that we work. In some cases, we own a, uh, a business together. So there are all sorts of partnerships in that. We have partnerships together here in the church. Danny, Dan, Chris, and I, we have a partnership as a pastor board and that we work together. We've committed to each other in this, in fellowship and participation. So we work together in doing that. The worship team, as you saw up here, there's a partnership that comes with that. These guys are working together to become better and better and better at leading us in worship. And they do that by committing to each other, having a partnership. And we do that. So... So Paul here is asking us, so what partnership, what, what fellowship, what, what participation is there with righteousness and unrighteousness? The concept that Paul is bringing out here, this, this what partnership, it's not a flippant question. So what's the big deal, right? What's the big deal between blue and green? It's not the point. Paul bringing here a, a, this term, his concept, if you look at this, is one of what's that there... It's, it's the strongest, it's the most definite he can be in stating that these two don't go together. This is not taken lightly. Paul isn't saying, what's the difference between the day and the night? He's asking, what is there? What relationship is there with the dark 
and the light, there should be none. That's his point. His point isn't, it's not rhetorical. He's not saying to us, you know, righteous and unrighteous. Of course you don't want to get those together. You don't want to mix them too much. Paul's saying there ought to be a dividing line between them that is absolutely impenetrable. Not a, well, it's just not good to mix them a lot. It ought to be separate. There is no room for unrighteousness in righteousness. None. Not even a little bit. Not even the smallest smudging between the two. There ought to be a dividing line that is absolutely impenetrable between these. Righteousness is what we ought to practice as believers. That should be the definition of us. If somebody were to describe us and what we did, it ought to be about righteousness. Not that we consider ourselves righteous, but rather our lives and everything we do is done in such a way as to point to the righteousness of God within us. And that's the whole idea here. Lawlessness really translates better to unrighteousness or or literally unrighteousness, dishonesty, injustice, sin, worldly principles. They can't come together. They can't be mixed. You, You can't be a person that is five parts righteous and three parts unrighteous. Right? If you're a little unrighteous, you're all unrighteous. It reminds me of the story of the dad who was trying to explain to his children the concepts of not watching programs that wouldn't be good to them because they were saying it's only got a little bit of bad stuff. So he went out in the yard and he grabbed some, some dog poop and he brought it in and he decided to make brownies. Now, if you look at all the ingredients that you put in brownies and this one little bit of dog poop, there's not much. But when you mix it all together, maybe you don't want to eat that stuff, Right? Now, his argument was, it's only a little bit. What are you whining about? You can't have the two together. He talks about what fellowship has light with darkness. Do you realize that darkness doesn't exist? Have you ever thought about that? Darkness doesn't exist. Darkness is an absence of light. That cold doesn't exist. Cold, cold is an absence of heat. Light and darkness can't be together because the minute you bring the light, guess what happens to the darkness? It's gone. The darkness can't deal with the light. Here we talk about the light as being Christ, the emblem of truth, virtue, holiness. We're asked to, we're told to walk in the light, not partially in the light. The word doesn't say take a step into the light occasionally. It says walk in the light. You should be so bright that the darkness flees. Right? You can't have the two. It's physically impossible to combine light and darkness because where there is light, there can be no darkness. Where there is darkness, there can be no light. Keep them separate. Harmony. What harmony has Christ with Belial? Literally, concord, sympathy, unison. How in the world could we consider carrying Jesus and the devil together? How could we consider that? How could we even imagine that? What could that look like? Belial is Satan. It literally translates to without profit, worthless. Nothing. That's where Satan is. Wicked. And he comes back. So therefore, having said all this, what does a believer 
have in common with an unbeliever. You can't mix these two guys. You can't do that. As we move into verse 16. Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Agreement, assent, accord. What is there in one that resembles the other? Can you imagine going into the temple at that time and putting your idol up? The priest goes into the temple and he is is going to serve God. So he offers a sacrifice of this. And then, by the way, he puts up his little bronze statue of whatever it was or wooden statue. And he just, you know, he just has it there kind of as a friend, friendly reminder that there's more than one God. We can do all this. What do you think? What do you guys think would happen if we put up the picture of another woman in our house? I don't think that'd fly very well in my house. And it ought not to fly in anybody's house. It's the same concept, but on a much smaller perspective. We're bringing in something. What has the temple of God to do with an idol? Well, we don't have the temple anymore. I'm made out of rocks and stones and gold and those other things, right? The temple's now made out of flesh. It's us. What do we do? What are we thinking when we bring idols into God's temple? With our eyes and our ears and we speak about them. What were we thinking when we did that? We thought maybe God just took a vacation and is okay now to use his, his temple for something else while he's gone. What were we thinking? God tells us that when he told the, the Israelites, and this is a, it's a, it's a bringing together of a number of different passages in Exodus, Leviticus, and Ezekiel. I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. When God indwells us as believers, we ought not to profane that temple with idols. What are we thinking? Verses 17 and 18, so therefore, right? I love the therefores because they tell us there's something to get from this. Therefore, since this is all true, we accept this completely. There is no relation between these things. You can't have them both. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean. And I will welcome you and I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, since we're different, We're indwelled by God as believers. It's really referring to Isaiah 52 and Revelations 18. We must remove ourselves from the world. And then God can welcome us to heaven, to him. He is the most holy God. We can't come to him when we're polluted and dirty. Right? He can't bring us close. He can forgive us. He can take away that. But he can't hold us when we're there, it's no different than our kids, right? And they go out and they play in, in the mud puddle or something. And they want to come give you a big hug. You don't want a hug from your kid full of mud. You clean them up first. So God does for us. He wants to have that separation. The Lord Almighty, interesting, is used only in Corinthians, in this verse, and in Revelation. And it talks about one with all power in, in contradiction to Idols that are weak and powerless. So it's an interesting comparison. We move on to chapter 7, verse 1, because this is all part of the same thing. And he says, therefore, again, 
reiterating, therefore, there's nothing that can be done with these two together. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Please, Corinthians, he's begging them. Therefore, because we know these things to be true, because we know light and darkness cannot coexist, Because we know righteousness and unrighteousness cannot coexist. Please, please listen to the promises of God where he talks about indwelling us, where he talks about us being his people, when he talks about being a father, when he talks about us being his sons and daughters. Please, Corinthians, please cleanse yourself of the defilements, the idols, the other issues, the problems, the struggles, the false teachers, all of these things that are going on. Please, Corinthians, remove yourself from those things. And if we were to stop here, I think most of us would be very confused. I think that was the interesting part for me in in looking at this because a lot of what we said really leads you to think, well, man, we need to form a commune put up a big fence around it, and as believers, stay there. We can raise our own food. We can get all our own sustenance. We'll be fine. We'll be okay. But what about the people who need Jesus? What about the people who need salvation? What are we going to do with them if we all huddle together and build a big fence around us with concertina wire on top? And we station guards all around to keep these people out. How will they ever be reached? How will they ever know the salvation and the saving grace of of Jesus Christ? How will they ever understand that ministry that God tells us that we're to go and be about? Well, I think that's where you have to remember to read the whole thing and, and look at the whole thing. We know that our job is to be disciple makers. Christ tells us that. Matthew, the Great Commission. Go therefore, making disciples. Right? So we know that God's not saying to us here, have nothing to do with unbelievers. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Don't you ever talk to them? Don't you wave to them? Don't you drive on the same streets as them? Don't you live in the same towns as them? Don't do anything with them. That's not at all what he's saying. So what are we to do? So let's look at this. Like the, last, the last slide, the summary. So questions for you then. Are we to have no interactions with people of the world? Are we to cut loose from all our friends who are not Christian? Are we to become monks and live a recluse and unsocial life? Are we to never mingle with the people of the world in business, in innocent recreation, or in the duties of citizens and as neighbors and friends? The answer is no. How then are we going to pull this all together in two minutes? Right? How in the world are we going to bring this all together? On one hand, he says, don't have anything to do with this. Light and dark don't work together. Righteousness and unrighteousness don't deal together. You just can't have them. We live in the world, guys. We have to be about reaching the people that are lost. What do we look at that? Well, there's some practical perspectives that we, that we need to look at. And I think that's the biggest thing that we have to evaluate is, realistically, what can we do? Well, we're careful where we go. We're careful how we tread. When you lay down with swine, you wake up smelling like a pig lot. But when you walk around 
amongst them, you don't necessarily. So how can we do that in this world? What do we stay out of? Well, there are things that he's telling us in this to stay away from. Idolatry. Stay away from idolatry, guys. It's out there everywhere around us, and it's, it's trying to entice us and to grab it. Uh, it looks like a job in some cases. It looks like a promotion in some cases. It looks like a new car. It looks like a new house. It looks like a new this, a new that. Are they inherently bad? No. But when we think only of them, yes, it becomes idolatry. Maybe it's our looks. For me, it's my hair. I spend hours on this every day. <laughs> no, I mean, it's a concept we have to be cautious about. What does it look like in your life? There's something. There's something that's taking you away from God and your time with him. And that's called idolatry. I'm going to wager that none of you have bronze figurines at home that when you get home, you're going to bow before, burn incense, and worship. But there's something in your life that is there in place of it. Look for it. Remove it. Stay out of areas where sin, vice, licentiousness. The Bible tells us don't partake in another man's sin. Be careful where you go. Be careful what you do. Christ ate with sinners, right? but he didn't become one. And there's a big difference. And you will be more or less capable of maintaining that distance from sin when you go into the world. So be cautious. If you know there's a stumbling block for you, don't go there. Or take someone with you so that they can help you. Put a yoke on. right? Put a yoke on and go in there. But be careful if you can't handle it. Arts and acts of dishonesty, deception, and fraud. We've got to stay away from them. Where, where are we doing that? Where do we see somebody getting ahead? How many, when you're given too little change back from you buy something, make sure that the cashier knows that? Now how many, when you get too much, make sure that the cashier knows it? How many do that? It's all a concept of, of, of what it looks like. Anything that we do or environment that we are in that you feel like bringing up Jesus Christ would be a really, really bad thing, you probably ought not to be there. If it would seem completely out of place, whatever it is you're doing, to stop and say to the person that you're with, your business partner or or your neighbor or whatever it is, If you were to say to them, can I tell you about Jesus? If you just seem like that would not make any sense whatsoever, you ought not to be there. Put yourself in environments where when you are yoked with an unbeliever in something, you have the opportunity to share Jesus with them. And that's that's such a critical step. What can we embrace? Commercial transactions, professional engagements, all of those that are conducted on an honest and upright principles. You work with somebody who's a non-believer in a business, but you have the opportunity to stay, keep everything above board from good moral perspectives, and they aren't leading you into sin. That's a great place to be. You can be a wonderful example to those people, and we need to be there. Literary and scientific pursuits, which do not interfere with the principles of Christianity. Great places to be. Science, unbeknownst to most scientists, 
was not designed by people. God came up with science long before people ever thought about science. We just think we got a corner on the market. I work with them. Right? I work with the people who are pretty well convinced that they develop science. And that's a problem. We have to be cautious in those endeavors. When we can keep everything above board and positive and shine Jesus, that's a good place to be. But if it's not, if we're getting caught up in the wrong thing, then we ought not to be there. We need to be cautious with that. As citizens, we've got to take part in our country. Regardless of how much America was founded on biblical beliefs, we're by no means the majority anymore. And it's not going to get any better from here on out. Right? That's just the way it is. It has nothing to do with any particular cycle. It has to do with people. It has to do with where we are. So we still, though, need to be about doing what's right. When we're called to serve, we need to serve, but we need to do it from such a perspective that we are honoring God in all of that, that we don't get caught up in other things. Jesus was a great example to us. Jesus was able to go in with the sinners, eat with them, celebrate with them, but never be tempted to become one of them. He was a great example of being able to be in a situation where he was yoked with people, but never drawn to the negative side of their lives or personalities, but rather was always drawing them to himself. We have the ability to have all that power. We just don't always use it. We don't always take advantage of it. He's given us the opportunity to walk away from any sin. We have the potential to walk away from any sin just like Jesus did. He promised us that. He will never allow us to be tempted that we cannot turn away from it. The question is, will you recognize it and will you make the effort to turn away? And when you fall because you don't, and we will, I will, will you get back up and go again? When Paul's talking about being unequally yoked here, he's trying to give the Corinthians some guidance and say, be careful, guys. We don't want you to get sucked into this other world. Could be marriage, could be business partnership, could be friendship, could be neighbors. It's life. Anything we do, please be careful not to be drawn into the other world, but rather hold your footing. Shine like the sun and draw people to him. That's what Paul's talking to the Corinthians about here. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I am so grateful for you and your truths and for your never-ending desire to teach us and lord i have a lot of room to grow and and i am so thankful for your constant education lord would you please help us see the areas that we're struggling with where we're becoming like the world and help us not to be would you help us those of us who are in the situation of being unequally yoked in a situation that's bad lord would you help us to guide us and show us what to do And Lord, would you help us as we're looking forward to help people that are moving in that direction to really see your plan and your design. Thank you so much for being who you are and never forsaking us. And Lord, as we enter into this time of communion, will you just, will you really show us our hearts in areas that we 
We really need to confess and we need to make right with people. And would you be lifted up, honored, and glorified? And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.